imagine that you have two urns. One has got 10 balls in it and the other has 100 balls in it. Well, let's say they're numbered 1 to 10 in the, the urn with 10 balls and 1 to 100 in the, the urn with 100 balls. If you reach into one of those urns and it says number 8, which urn is it more likely to come from? The urn with 10 balls and it would be the more likely one. Now imagine that we number each human being in terms of their birth order. We might be up to like 100 billion now. You reach into the urn, you look at yourself. Your birth order number is, say, 50 billion. Now, are you more likely to come from the scenario which says there'll only be 50 billion human beings, or are you more likely to come from the scenario that says there's going to be 100 trillion human beings? Oh, interesting. Imagine you serve coffee at Starbucks. Starbucks knows exactly how much to pay you each hour. They know exactly how much coffee you can make. They know exactly what that coffee costs them. They know exactly what profit margin they want. Creative work is not serving coffee. You never know how long it takes for an idea to brew. When a breakthrough does come to you, the results can be unpredictable. Sometimes a project takes off. Sometimes it doesn't. Some of that is due to skill. A lot of that is due to luck. If you're going to love your work, you need to know how to deal with uncertainty. If you write a book, what are the chances it will sell? When you launch this product, how much money will it make? Questions like these help you choose. Amongst the countless actions you can take, what actions are worth it? And when you do finally make a choice and you look back at the results, do you really have a clear picture whether you made the right decision? What can you learn from the decision you made which can make your future decisions wiser, more clear, better? When you're trying to love your work, you're dealing with uncertainty. Part of dealing with uncertainty is knowing how to be at least a little more certain in an uncertain world. It's as close as you can get to predicting the future. Dylan Evans had an intense experience with uncertainty. He was 50% certain that civilization would collapse within several years. So he sold his house. He gave up his job. He set out to learn how to survive the apocalypse. He tells the story in his book, The Utopia Experiment. He and a team of volunteers constructed yurts on the Scottish Highlands and started growing their own food and making their own clothes, trying to see if they could disconnect themselves from civilization. Civilization didn't collapse within the period of time that Dylan had predicted. And as he looked at what remained of his life, he started to ask himself, where did I go wrong? And this led Dylan to study what he calls risk intelligence. He now has written a book by that title, Risk Intelligence. It's the ability to navigate uncertainty. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. So in this conversation, you'll learn how can you make falsifiable forecasts on your creative projects? When you make falsifiable forecasts, you can start to score your ability to predict the future. If you improve your forecasting skills, you'll make better predictions and better decisions. Dylan says the difference between a good decision maker and a poor decision maker is that a good decision maker will rate the quality of his or her decision by the actual thought process going into the decision, not did it turn out to be the correct decision. Well, how do you rate the quality of your decisions? How do you rate the thought process that went into a decision. We'll talk about that. You may have fantasized yourself about unplugging from civilization. I know I have. 
I was curious, what is the one thing about civilization that Dylan realized that he was taking for granted when he did the utopia experiment? Here is Dylan Evans. I'm here with Dylan Evans, and you have such a wide breadth of experiences. You've written books on the placebo effect, Lacanian psychoanalysis, evolution, evolutionary psychology, risk intelligence, emotion, atheism, so many different things. The most interesting thing to me, I think, is the utopia experiment. And I think it might be a good entry point, perhaps, into some of those other interests. Tell us what the utopia experiment was and how your various areas of expertise and interest drove you to conduct this experiment. Great. Yes. Well, first, thanks for having me on your show. And it's, it's a pleasure uh, talking to you. I, the Utopia experiment was an attempt to find out how people might behave if civilization collapsed and there was only a few survivors, or pockets of survivors spread over the country. So I invited a bunch of volunteers to come and live with me up in the Scottish Highlands. And we had a, a scenario that described how civilization had collapsed and how we'd all got up to Scotland. And we had to uh, live in accordance with that scenario and make our own accommodation, grow our own food, make our own clothes, make our own social rules. And to use that as a kind of living embodied thought experiment, if you like, rather than just sitting in our armchairs and imagining how life would be in the aftermath of a social collapse, we kind of acted it out and see what the dilemmas would occur in that situation through actually living it. And the, the, sorry, yeah, the reason why I was I, I kind of got into that was, was a whole bunch of different issues, but I was working in AI at the time and I was reading a lot of rather dystopian warnings about the future of uh, humanity. One of my old friends, Nick Bostrom, was thinking about social collapse and uh, the, the danger, the risks of AI. Bill Joy and his famous article in Wired uh, magazine was talking about how the future doesn't need us because this technology is on the brink of perhaps causing an existential threat to humanity. So there's a bunch of concerns about technology and there was also you know, the looming climate crisis and fears about sustainability coming from there too. And also tying in a third element, if you like, my kind of thinking in evolutionary psychology about how there's this mismatch between our evolved predispositions and the technological environment in which we live and wondering whether it would be possible mm -hmm. maybe even to be happier in a, in a less technological environment. Right. And I assume you put so much into this project. I assume that you... Uh, you yourself believe that there was a decent probability of civilizational collapse within some time window around the time of this experiment. Is that yeah, yes, that's correct. I, I was subject to, to a number of uh, in, interesting cognitive biases, let's say, that later on became a sort of subject for my research because I was fascinated by the way that I myself had become kind of hypnotized by my own predictions, if you like. So the, as one of the interesting things about making predictions about the future is that the more you come to dwell on a, on a possibility, the more you read about it, the more you think about it, even if you are not explicitly coming to believe in it, you nevertheless find yourself 
thinking of this, these scenarios as more probable. So even though I was began by just researching the probability or the likelihood of some very extreme scenarios and not necessarily giving that much credence to them, after a while, I began to think of them as more and more probable. And I became, for a while, a committed doomer, let's say. And yeah, I began to think that there was a very high probability of social collapse. I believe I've read something from Philip Tetlock talking about this bias in terms of predicting a scenario. As you as you think about scenarios, perhaps you give them a higher likelihood than you might otherwise. I guess that's right. Think them through, yeah. Yes, Philip Tetlock uh, and his work has been quite influential later on in my work about risk intelligence, precisely because of this. Probably one of these biases is, as you say, the more you think about something, the more likely you are to think it is going to occur. And and your interest in risk intelligence, was that before, after, interwoven with this experiment? It really came up after the experiment because I realized that my thinking about risk had been very unintelligent before. Ah. And it is a particular moment, just as I was beginning to do the experiment, I came I had a, an encounter with Nick Bostrom, who I talked about just a, a bit earlier. And yeah, a super intelligence, amazing book. Yeah, fantastic. And uh, he's a he's a an old friend of mine because we did our PhDs together at the LSE, and so I, you know he was doing his PhD at the time on the doomsday on on the doomsday thought experiment, which we can talk about later if you like. But he was he asked me at one point. He said, "What? Okay, Dylan, you know, an interesting experiment, but uh, what probability do you think?" there is that something like this is going to happen in the next 10 years, that civilization will collapse. And I came right out and said, I think there's about a 50% chance. And he was really shocked by that really high estimate. And later on, after the experiment was over, I reflected on that. And I thought, hey, you know, that's a really good question, because it forced me to put an actual number on something. And then later on, I could see when I remembered that number, I could. See, there was no way I could fool myself that I, I'd been sort of more rational than I had been, and I could remember that actual number as sort of indicative of uh, my uh-huh. thinking at the time and the, the extent to which I had really sort of was o- massively overestimating the chances of a social collapse. Well, and this ties in so much with Tetlock's work too. I, I know that I've been experimenting with trying to make predictions in my business, for example, uh, a little lower stakes of like, if, if, if I think that I'm going to do a product launch and it's going to make this amount of money that, well, what's my probability that I think it's going to fall within this window? And I like what you said about that you, you liked that you had given a probability to it because then you remembered it and later on you couldn't say, yeah, well, I said there was a distinct possibility and that means possibility and it didn't happen. And so therefore... That was that you know can sort of move the. I don't know if that was moving the goalposts or not. Uh, the, or just hindsight bias, maybe is is what it is. Exactly. Yes, we can always sort of look back, and if we don't put a number on it, we can say, well, you know, I thought it was likely, but not that likely. But if uh, and those are ambiguous words, so we can reinterpret them later on to make ourselves uh, sound a little bit more like we were maybe not as wrong as we turned out to be. So I think, yeah, putting a number on something and you know, writing it down or at least trying to remember exactly what that number is, is is a really good way of holding your future self or your previous self to account. 
Yeah, and I have to give you some credit that you you might uh, be reluctant to give to yourself, uh, which is that you can't necessarily rate the quality of your decisions based upon outcomes. Is that a thing that you think about as well? Absolutely, yeah. I think you uh, good. The difference between a you know a good decision maker and a poor, poor decision maker. One of those differences, at least, is that. Uh, a good decision maker will rate the quality of his or her decision by the actual thought process going into the decision, not did it turn out to be the correct decision in the when the when the outcomes when the dice have fallen, so to speak. You know that can be just luck. So it's better to make a, a decision that uh, turned out maybe not to be successful, but was the right decision given the information you had, than to make a a lucky decision that turned out okay, but was actually just a fluke. Because in the long run, it's the first kind of decision that is going to be one that pays off. Right. And this is harder to do when you do have a good outcome to say, you know, that was a good outcome, but I my thinking was flawed on this. Right. And so I think it's important to remember when you make these decisions to be able to be really make a sort of keep a record of the kind of factors that you considered and the reasoning that you went through. And then you can check back and then see whether or not the decision itself, you know, was whether the factors that you considered were the ones that linked in with the the outcome or whether it was, you know, just luck. Yeah. And I mean, just to give a real world example back to my own predictions that I make in, in my own business, inspired by Tetlock's work. I, I also read this in Risk Intelligence, your book, which is basically that if I have some sort of baseline number of oh, the last time I launched this product, I made this much money. And here are my list of factors that may affect that number going up or down that are different this time around then I can kind of say, well, that's probably going to increase 20%. That's probably going to decrease my earnings 30%. And then kind of combining those together to come up with some kind of new prediction. And then after the fact, if you're right or wrong, you can start to rate the quality of your decision based upon, well, and I'm just thinking this through. I don't know if this is maybe the best way to do it, but what... what what do I believe really did affect my prediction? And was that a factor that I considered? Is that how you might rate the quality of your decision rather than based upon the outcome? Yes, I think uh, you, for one, there's several ways you can measure the decisions. I mean, one thing is to do is just to see whether you're calibrated to begin with. So on, you know, on the, when you take a whole bunch of your decisions, do the probabilities that you've assigned to each prediction or each factor do they do they turn turn out to marry up with the actual frequencies of the outcomes so you, these are simple you can use a bright something called the briar score to to measure this but you also need to look at the factors going each into each individual decision and so if you're betting on horses for example you might uh, build a model in which and it doesn't have to be an explicitly linear model or something. It can just be something very informal where you're weighting various factors. You write it. You say, "Well, for this this horse, I think this this horse is going to win because it's 
won on the last two races and it's ridden by a good jockey, for example, and it prefers this kind of ground when the, the it prefers a rather dry ground, for example. Mm-hmm. And then you can see later on, well, perhaps uh, the, the ground was very dry, but the horse isn't really, it's not really working well on that kind of ground, or perhaps it rains and the horse still wins. So you maybe then begin to think about whether these individual factors, maybe you're overweighting them, you may have to weight them down, and the next time you, you make that kind of consider that kind of uh, that scenario. And you mentioned Briar score. Is that is that kind of a um, between point one at meaning basic ten percent probability, and you know, and one point certain probability, or zero meaning certainly not going to happen, and and one meaning certainly going to happen with point five meaning that you're basically completely uncertain. So the Briar score is the way of evaluating those probability predictions when you make a Ah. So you may, what you'll do is typically when you're trying to calibrate your own ability to make probabilistic forecasts, is you'll make a bunch of forecasts. You'll say, so for example, the chance that my business is going to turn a profit uh, next week or profit above a certain margin next week uh, and the week after and the week after that. put a probability against each one. The probability can be expressed, yes, as a number between zero and one, or it can be expressed as a percentage. It doesn't really matter which way you do that. But then the Briar score is a a way that's used to take a whole bunch of your estimates and say, how good a decision maker, how close to uh, perfect calibration were you? Perfect calibration Uh would would be that every time, you know, for every time that you say that there's a 10% chance of winning or a 10% chance of something happening, in the long run, 10% 10% of those outcomes should actually happen. And the same- Nine of the times it doesn't happen, and then 10 of the times it, it does. Right. Or one of the times, sorry. Yeah. One out of yeah, 10. So that's a, a simple way of uh, capturing how calibrated someone is, how accurate they are at making probabilistic forecasts. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you make the forecast, you rate your the quality of it, and, and say over time... Maybe you're, <laughs> this is, we're, we're probably going to get in the weeds here and, and uh, maybe lose some listeners, but I'm certainly curious about it because what, the way that I do it is say with a product launch and I have, and I've been messing around. I don't know the exact right way to do this. I've just sort of said, well, with a product launch, there's a revenue number and I can't get that exactly right. So I kind of say, well, let's just say, what's my 70% confidence that I'll be within this range? And then so that I can prevent myself from making it easier on myself, I then restrict that range to, I think, 30% change between the bottom and the top. And, and, you know, 30% is the remainder of 70%, but that's just my arbitrary, what I've been trying so far. Do you have any... Does that make sense to you? And do you have any advice for me on how how to better rate my decisions in predicting something when there is a, a range that I'm trying to hit? Personally, I, I just uh, prefer to 
use point probability estimates because I think it's just easier to measure how good you are and it forces you to be uh, nail your cuddlers to the mast kind of thing. Oh, okay. So, yeah, I would just uh, say for each, you, for each, make a whole bunch of statements that can be fairly easily verified to whether or and they have a binary outcome. So they do either do happen or they don't happen. It's a yes, no thing. And then put for each of those statements, put a probability estimate on it. So, for example, that you know, John Bolton will be forced to testify before the, the Senate, then put a probability on that, 35%, 40%. And then when it happens, mark it down as, well, did it come true or not, your prediction? And then you can use something like a prior score to calculate overall for a whole bunch of probability estimates how good you are at Yeah. But that. that one's that one's binary, you know. It's yeah. like you can you can easily and so it, what what can you do about times when when there's a, a range like with revenue? So with revenue, I would say it's going to be what's the cha- chance that it's going to be within a certain range? What's the chance that yeah. it's going to be over a certain threshold or under a certain threshold? And so I'd make them all into binary predictions and then assert, assign a probability to each of those. Right. So, okay, I'm thinking this through again. So I, I, I basically, like I said, I do, I'm 70% confident it will be within this range and then I try to restrict that range. And I mean, that kind of becomes a binary yeah, so you're, problem then, doesn't it? Exactly. Is it in the range or is it out? Exactly, yes. Okay, and then so, but by choosing 70%, that helps me perhaps with less data come up with my Briar score because I can constantly... I'm always choosing the same confidence, you know, 70% and that it will be within this range. And I don't know if, if that was outside of your advice or not, but, but then I can always, I can, you know, within 10 predictions, I can know, well, did I get seven of them right? You will, you will, I think, sir, you, you, what you'll do is that each time you get feedback. So if you do make a, a many, as many predictions as you can each week, and then each week calculate your prior score or so, use some other method to, uh, usually the prior score is the best. You should be then, mm-hmm. each week, you should be getting feedback on how good you are at making those predictions. And then each week, you should see some kind of improvement. If you're going back and checking the predictions that didn't come true or the predictions that were way out, the predictions mm-hmm. that uh, where you put a high number on the predi- on the probability and yet it still didn't come to thinking about those uh partic- why did you why were you overconfident on that? Why were you less confident on something else? You generally find that yeah, it's that feedback that will gradually yeah. calibrate you. So you should be appropriately confident. Yeah. And it's it's been helpful for me so far, certainly, because a lot of times in my business, I would just do a thing and maybe not really report to anybody what I thought my reasons were that something would or would not work and then maybe uh, change my story afterward. But as I, I I put these in my income reports and make these predictions and then later on rate them and, and I don't know, supposedly over time that will improve my my decision-making skills, and maybe that will uh, transfer into some some other things in life. So I, we got down that decision-making rabbit hole, or the risk intelligence rabbit hole, by way of that utopia experiment. I um, imagine other people are curious about this utopia experiment and and how things turned out. Like, what what were were there any surprises that you ran into in the course of this experiment? 
Yes, a whole bunch of surprises. So I was hoping that uh, we would be able to construct a kind of a society where we, we would make our decisions more collectively and where we would manage to avoid kind of the typical uh, alpha male kind of power broker at the top. And so as the founder of this experiment, you know, I was naturally sort of, I guess, po- poised for that kind of role. But because I didn't occupy that role and was hoping that then we could make our decisions more collaboratively, it what resulted, and perhaps this isn't a surprise looking back on things in, with hindsight, but uh, was a power vacuum. And so what people really, I think, in these situations, they tend to want a, a lot more certainty than is co- consistent with, again, with kind of rational decision-making and a sort of more flat power structure. And I think that this is something that, again, terror management theory talks about this, where we, in a situation where our survival is at stake, where all our normal routines are disrupted and the normal context of our lives is, is somehow threatened, we tend to look for more certainty. And so we often find the rise of more authoritarian leaders in these situations. And if someone isn't sort of offering that, guidance, then people will step in and try to provide that themselves. So people want kind of maybe more certainty, more sort of the ability to impose sort of stricter punishments and uh, stricter rules than would perhaps be the case in, in, a, in a more uh, situation of greater plenty. So we, and the other, and another big surprise, perhaps again, one which looking back on it, I should have foreseen was the incredible power of the scenario to become uh, a reality for people and to who to see that scenario as something real rather than hmm. just something they were acting out now this is a bit you know like the stanford prison experiment which again has been that's something that has been there's a lot of criticism of Contro- controversy yeah yeah so, you know, I think we should be careful about sort of interpreting or over-interpreting that. But I did see something rather similar to that occurring in the experiment in the sense that when, for example, when someone stole something, there was a lengthy discussion about the kind of punishment that should be imposed on this person and should we cut their hands off or uh, impose some other kind of very drastic physical punishment. And when... People tried to point out that, hey, you know, this is, you know, just an we should, you know, the police might be interested if we did something like that. People were saying, well, look, there aren't any police around because civilization has collapsed. And at that point, you begin to uh, wonder whether people have, you know, they're really talking about the experiment or reality or whether the the distinction between the two is somewhat blurred. So that was, yeah, it gets a bit, and if you're, we were really, you know, away from anyone, far away from kind of civilization. So I think, you know, that it, it, it's perhaps easier to drift into those sort of kind of illusions when the normal reality is, is kind of, you're, you're blocked away or cut off from it, like, like they were right. also in the basement of the Stanford Psychology Lab. Can you describe the, the settlement and, and the scenario that, the hypothetical scenario that brought all of you there? 
Right. So we the, the settlement was on the, a place called the Black Isle in north of Inverness in the Scottish Highlands. It's not actually an island, but it's it's a peninsula, and there are some fairly remote bits. So we the scenario we were acting out was based on a combination of a kind of perfect storm of economic factors, environmental factors, technological disruption coming together to kind of cause supply chains to snap, and then that leading to a kind of civil order crisis in the UK and globally. And then eventually, you know, the cities running out of food, people trying to get out of the cities, trying to make their way, uh, running out of petrol. So pe- most people would probably be, wouldn't get very far. And it, this is the kind of doom scenario that maybe the kind of survivalists have already considered and some science fiction considers. It was, it was really a device to kind of enable this experiment to get off the ground and to imagine that a bunch of people had uh, made it far enough away from the major city centers to be safe from the, the kind of collapse and the, the sort of mayhem that would result and to try and start life anew. And then the you had yurts. Uh, how many people were involved? What, what, what was the kind of starting point of the yeah. of the settlement? So we, there were about 20 people, usually sometimes down to, if so, sometimes one or two people, if they left, it might go down to 15. We'd try to get in one or two other volunteers then to bring it back up to, to 20. So between 15 and 20, at any, it sort of fluctuated around that. We built our own accommodation. Yes. Then we lived, slept in yurts that are Mongolian structures that are very good at keeping you warm in the, very cold Scottish winters, not so good at keeping you dry, we found. There's not a lot of rainfall in Mongolia, but there's a lot of rainfall in Scotland. We also had a, there was an old sort of remains of an old structure on this land, which has, had been used for storing potatoes many years ago, probably in the 19th or 18th century. So we kind of managed to renovate that and turn that into a kind of communal kind of cooking and eating and drying place for smoke and for certain part, food storage. So it was pretty rudimentary and it was, yeah, it was quite a challenge to live there. We're going to take a quick break. If you're having trouble hiring the best talent for your business, it's probably because the best talent already has a job. The best talent is never looking for a job. So how do you get your job host in front of the best talent if they're not looking? You go somewhere, they're already spending time. You know that LinkedIn is a hot social platform for professionals. You heard Robbie Yabed talking about it a few episodes ago. So what if you could get your job openings in front of the best professionals, the ones who are already spending time on LinkedIn? You can do exactly that with LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has the deepest, most up-to-date, most insightful data set on professionals. They use that data to match your job opening to qualified professionals. Many of them aren't even actively looking for a new job because they have great jobs because they're top talent. LinkedIn will promote your job opening across their platform. They will target the professionals who are the best fit for that job. I think it's brilliant because the best talent isn't actively looking for a job, yet LinkedIn is still able to reach them. So it's no wonder that a person is hired every eight seconds with LinkedIn. Find the right person for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want and get the first $50 off. Just visit linkedin.com slash loveyourwork. 
Again, that's linkedin.com slash loveyourwork to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. And I mean, there were some ways in which you, you obviously had to how did you think about how how you were plugged into civilization? I mean, if there were some ways that you were plugged into civilization that you could not escape. Right. So right. this is, you know, one of the things that one of the ironies, I guess, of trying to do something like this is that it's very easy to imagine that you can cut yourself off from civilization. And it's actually yeah, really much harder than people maybe imagine. Uh, anyone who's tried this in an intentional community, there's lots of them in the US, will uh, know what I'm talking about. But you know, it takes a long time to become self-sufficient. And so we, obviously, in the early days, we had to try and we had to live on something. So we had a kind of list of things that we could have grown ourselves. We weren't able to grow those at the beginning, so we had to buy some of those in. And that was kind of coming to terms with those kind of dilemmas. It, it makes you feel, well, you know, is this how real is this experiment then? Because people, you know, if they were really in this situation, would they have been able to, how long would they survive? If maybe it would work if some people had started setting something like this up in advance or as the, as the sort of early warning signs of civilization or collapse began to appear on the horizon and some foresighted people might begin to set up a community like this. There's some hope of surviving, but we we tried to simulate that by having a sort of gradual decrease of the available kinds of that we, we were allowed to consume there. So stuff that maybe as supply lines gradually begin to uh, first gradually erode, there's a gradual decrease of the kind of things that you can lay your hands on until you end up in a situation where you can only really eat and consume the things that either you can grow yourself or catch, or you could trade with locally if there were some other groups that were had slightly different resources. So, I mean, those are the sort of things that we thought about while we were doing the experiment and tried to kind of make as, as realistic as possible given the constraints. So... For a little while there, you're uh, maybe going to the grocery store and buying some things and saying, well, maybe the grocery store still has some stuff that can be ransacked for a little while and that and, and that fits into our uh, scenario. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's what we ended up doing. And it's kind of, it, it, it is kind of makes you think about each individual thing that you're, you're buying or you're consuming in terms of... What 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 are the you know where did this come from how mm. how far did it take to get here how likely is it that we could have access to this uh, one month into a kind of gradual or uh, more rapid crisis how likely is it we could have access to this after three months and so and you know what's the speed at which these collapses occur people talk for example about the the, the fall of the Roman Empire that didn't it didn't mean that overnight everyone in, say, the periphery of the Roman Empire suddenly lost access. It was occurred over generations. A collapse of a more technological society might happen faster, but how fast and when do we say it's fully collapsed? And those are the sorts of questions that are uh, interesting to explore in a kind of much more real way when you're trying to deal with those kind of uh, issues in your day-to-day -day life rather than just imagining it. Well, you mentioned uh, Nick Bostrom's doomsday thought experiment. Can you describe that? 
So that yeah, this is the his doomsday argument. He actually, I think he was he didn't take it make it up himself, but he was writing on this as part of his PhD research on observer bias. And it, it's it's again, it's to do with risk and probabilities. So and it's kind of interesting because it's an argument that will seems to give you some really strong empirical conclusions on the basis of just some very very basic assumptions. So. Imagine that if you have two urns, one has got 10 balls in it and the other has 100 balls in it. Let's say they're numbered, the balls are numbered 1 to 10 in the in the, the urn with 10 balls and 1 to 100 in the, the urn with 100 balls. If you reach into one of those urns and you don't know which urn you've pulled a ball out of and it says number 8, which urn is it more likely to come from? Which urn do you think you've reached into and picked that ball out? I would guess that the urn with 10 balls in it would be the more likely one. Right. And that's a a simple example of uh, Bayesian reasoning. Now, imagine that we number each human being in terms of their birth order. And uh, I think it might be, we might be up to like 100 billion now, and maybe 50 billion. I don't know what the exact numbers are. And consider just to begin with two scenarios where the human race will come to an end after maybe 100 billion human beings, or it will come to an end after. 100 trillion human beings. You reach into the urn, you look at yourself. What's your own order, your birth order number? Your birth order number is, say, 50 billion. Now, are you more likely to come from the scenario which says there'll only be 50 billion human beings, or are you more likely to come from the scenario that says there's going to be 100 trillion human beings? Oh, interesting. So, so it's more likely that I that I I come from the urn with fewer human beings, right? So just knowing something about something really apparently trivial, like the number of human being, the the number the number of human being that you are, what number are you in the birth order? It seems that we can derive something pretty consequential, which is the the fact that the human race is likely to die out sooner rather than later, and this is really bugged philosophers. In fact, they're still arguing about, you know, it seems kind of wrong that we should be able to draw such a strong empirical conclusion on the basis of something like this very slender kind of piece of reasoning. But people haven't figured out if there is anything actually wrong with the argument and, or if it really works, or if there is something wrong with the argument, what is it? At the moment, a lot of people think, well, it, it seems to work. And I mean, we can argue, well, what does sooner rather than later mean? You can generalize the argument from just two scenarios to a whole range of scenarios, because obviously, you know, those aren't the only two possibilities. It's, it could be something in between. It could be a lot longer. But there's, there's an, this is what I like about uh, Nick Bostrom's thinking, is that often he'll take converging points of argument, converging arguments, converging uh, different points of starting points for his and his thinking, and they'll converge on a on a kind of similar idea, which is that you know existential risk is a real something, a very serious threat, something that we have to think about, and something that we should be actively preparing for. Now, it doesn't have to happen in the form of catastrophic social collapse. It could be something, something else. It could be AI. It could be a comet crashing into the Earth. But you know, these kinds of how can we think about these sort of more general issues in a systematic and informed way? Uh, that's the kind of I think the sort of what I like about his his general research program. Yeah, and this re- reminds me of the thinking that was exhibited when we spoke with uh, Rob Wiblin of Eighty Thousand Hours from the 
which is, I guess, a, a part of the effective altruist community, which basically thinking that if there's something that's extremely high cost or that would be really terrible to happen or that would be really incredible to have happen, but it's a low probability that perhaps that still merits a high investment in that in that scenario. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, Rob Wiblin and 80,000 Hours and, and the effective altruism movement. I, I think they're, they're doing some really important thinking about these long-term issues and kind of helping to guide younger people into making the right choices about how they can have a big impact on some of those issues. Of course, it depends upon how somebody feels about the possibility that they might reach the end of their career and find that the thing that they were acting upon as if it were going to happen didn't happen and that they could resist rating the quality of their decision based upon that outcome rather than the the decision-making process that drove them into that. Right. There's no guarantees. I mean, if they can, if they can reach, if that happens and they, they can be happy with the decision they've made, then they're more likely to be happy with the decision they've made that if they, if they're the kind of person who rates the decision on kind of the, the rationality of the, the decision making process rather than the outcome. So I think, but yeah, you have to be, you know, it's a high risk working on any of these issues is a high risk venture because, you know, by definition, these are very small probabilities. So, you know, you have to be kind of interested in the thing for its own sake as well, I think. You have to have like the risk appetite or the risk uh, tolerance to do it. It also makes me think about the, the very common heuristic that people have about making decisions sometimes where they seem to optimize for how they're going to feel on their deathbed. Right. I'm not sure whether that's wrong or right. It, it could. Uh, it's very hard to say, isn't it? Because it's. It could be a very small moment and a very sh- brief one. So it would be sort of. Rather, or you might not be aware of it. And actually. You might not be yeah. aware of it, right? I think as a, a kind of a ref, an, an inflection point, something that can focus your thinking. It's kind of. It, it's a. It's an interesting thought experiment because even if you never actually consider it on your deathbed, it can help to kind of frame your 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 ideas about what constitutes a good life. But yeah, I I mean, people differ also in terms of the kind of how much weight they place in their decisions on, say, maximizing something positive or maximizing a positive outcome for others, or whether they want to minimize regret, regret avoidance. And I I think, yeah, those, those two things can be often pulled in different directions. Just to paint that potential picture in case it's not obvious, you could, you could, be on your deathbed and say, ah, I I dedicated my life to improving AI ethics and it didn't turn out to matter at all. And I wasted my life, depending upon how you think about uh, risk. It's a possible scenario that one might find oneself in. Yeah. I mean, it might turn out that you didn't have to, you know, didn't, it was wasted because the AI didn't uh, materialize, and that you'd have to be pretty, you know, if you were worried about the the sort of AI risk of something very bad happening to people, then and that that's what the ethics was designed to prevent. Then the fact that the outcome didn't, you weren't, you didn't need the preventive measures. Well, that's got to be a good thing, right? Yeah. So with the utopia, uh, the utopia experiment, how do you feel about that? Because 
I mean, it's been a very short time since the experiment happened. You had this uh, high degree of certainty. I don't know whether we're still, whether or not we're outside of the window that you and Nick were talking about when you had that conversation. And, you know, is a part of you like, oh no, civilization didn't collapse? Or, or, or how do you think about whether that was the right decision to do to um, put all that you did into making that experiment happen? Well, I, I, we, we're technically just outside that time period now and civilization hasn't collapsed. I think that I still uh, think that there is a significant probability that there might be something threatening to civilization. And, you know, there's a number of risk factors that still loom large. I think that it, that it was worth doing the experiment for a number of reasons, not just socially, but also for myself personally. It uh, caused, I did have a, a major depressive episode as a result of the experiment. And that was a very tough time for me. But I think, you know, I came out of it feeling a lot stronger and feeling that, and it led to my research on risk intelligence. So that was, a, that was a very positive outcome for me personally. The other volunteers, you know, a lot of them have written to me afterwards and said, you know, they thought that was a, a really useful and powerful experience in, in their lives. So I think it had some positive effects, but it was, uh, yeah, it did get very difficult. And I remember there's a part in your book that I thought was was interesting, given everything that you put into the the utopia experiment, where you say even if you think the apocalypse is imminent, you're probably better off not bothering to prepare and just taking your chances with everybody else when the shit hits the fan. How do you think about about that viewpoint? Well, I think that, that to to some extent that's right because if when you start to think about yes, you can survive the early maybe the early weeks or the first year or two of something very, very serious uh, civilization, you know, some very serious disturbance to the edifice of uh, a modern society. But in terms of thinking about something lasting longer term, it's, 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 things get much, much harder. And uh, people often don't think when they're sort of constructing their survival plans, what, what's going to happen, you know, in the long run and whether or not, I mean, perhaps, they don't. We just can't plan that far ahead. But it strikes me that you know there's a lot of kind of you. You have to be pretty well fortified. You'd have to be prepared for other people to come and try and the, the other the remaining few survivors to be pretty well armed. You'd have to. It's sort of to really prepare for that. I think you'd have to be so put so much effort and energy into preparing for it that you, it would be a very high stakes and very high risk strategies. So probably I would say you're better off building uh, strong, resilient ties with your local community if you if you have that opportunity or possibility, because you're more likely to survive with the uh, the sort of strength of the local community rather or and if you if things don't work out and things get very, very difficult, you're not gonna have much more of a chance of surviving for much longer out in in some very small remote community and you probably have a tougher time so you know it, it kind of makes you think about mortality in uh, in kind of an interesting way what you're talking about earlier just now about looking for you know imagining your deathbed and what kind of you look back on your life and what constitutes a successful life but you have to think about when people are thinking in terms of personal preservation in the face of a doomsday scenario um making a kind of bolt hole for themselves. 
what is going on there is it really i think something much deeper is a sense of like thinking for some kind of ultimate guarantee for survival and mm-hmm. um thinking that you can somehow there aren't any guarantees you have to accept your mortality and you have to accept that you're going to die one way or another unless you believe that you know you that we're on the cusp of inventing some medical technology that will indefinitely preserve us so probably right. you're and even then you have to contemplate the possibility that it's not going to work you get hit by a car and yeah or or the electricity that upholds the cryogenic suspension facility will fail you know the power so you know that you have to consider this as a possibility and you yeah. have to you have to make your peace with that it's interesting you mentioned the cryo cryogenic freezing because i believe nick bostrom has an anklet yeah. on that says he'll be cryogenically frozen Right, and I, I know a couple of other people who have similar commitments, and I think that's that's great. I, it's sort of fairly if you've got the savings and you, you know, it's for a, it's it's pay perhaps not much of investment for a pretty high outcome, a high value outcome. I I think you know that's I, d- I yeah. think the probability of of that actually panning out is extremely low. So it's not really something that I would personally do, but I think great. It's, if, it's a role of a very, very large roulette wheel. Exactly. Yeah. And so, <laughs> so why not? If you, if you want to put your money on that, then I guess it's better than, you know, if you, it, it gives you a slight chance of uh, surviving, then maybe I, I don't think that it's it, personally, I don't think it's uh, very likely. You're right. Uh, and how did this experience make you think about, well, I guess we had a saint, he called himself a sane prepper on the show, John Ramey. How does this make you think about short-term issues such as, oh, there might be an earthquake and you're, you're two or three weeks without food or water. Did, did this change your approach to hedging for scenarios such as that? I think that's a pretty good, pretty self-sensible thing to do. I think it depends a lot on where you are, but if you have the possibility of living making your your house or your disaster proof for a while having some basic supplies of fuel and food strikes me as as a sane thing to do and it can be fun you know so if you've got kids that can be you know quite kind of a a fun activity to do as long as you don't scare them too much (laughs) and yeah i think you know i've always sort of been someone who is like intrigued by well, how much can I do on my own? How what, what how could I substitute? What could I do if I couldn't get hold of this one particular thing? Could I make this? Could I find have a way of making my own toothpaste? Could I make my own toothbrush? Could I make my own soap? Could I just 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 interesting to think about? Then also increases your appreciation for the amazing things that we have access to while things are going well, and the the amount of incredible design work that just goes into something as simple as you know a pencil to take that famous example that um i quote in the book about no nobody knows how to make a pencil exactly no one person right and so i think that increases my appreciation for the sort of amazing sort of webs of uh interdependence that we've created through um capitalism basically and uh, economic progress so i'm kind of i think uh, it, 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 it can be quite a useful consciousness raising exercise it's one of those things that i think that a lot of people fantasize about i think about sometimes like oh what, what if you could just 
unplug from civilization completely and, uh, you know, just go live in the woods and, 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 you know, just do everything yourself. But I think that probably few of us have really thought that through. You're, you've experienced it. So what were the major things from civilization that you maybe found that you were taking for granted? Well, one of the things is definitely, uh, and this might, might seem a bit strange, but access to good music. I, I think you know, <laughs> un- until, until uh, relatively recently, you know, if you wanted to have good music, you either had to be an expert uh, violinist or piano player or singer or something and, or have uh, resources to kind of visit a concert in person. And nowadays, you know, we can just at the touch of a button, we can pull up anything, any recording of any piece of music we like and just listen to the best recordings in the world. I mean, one of the, if you've got to entertain yourselves, it's fine. Uh, if you've never heard, um, you know, Bob Dylan or, you know, some play, someone, you know, like Maria Callas singing, if you, but if you, if you have trying to go back to just your friends playing the guitar around a campfire is, is 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 fine for a night or two, but you know sometimes you kind of think, well, you, we're very lucky the, the world we live in at the moment. That's so fascinating. Uh, it's something I thought about a little bit. Uh, I, I think we marvel at this idea, or, or those those of us who are paying attention marvel at this idea that we can listen to so much music on on demand, and then we compare it to, oh gosh, you know, remember when I had CDs? Mm-hmm. But to take it to a whole other level and, and and go further back and say, well, what about when there weren't even recordings? Yes, you needed a musician there to play for you, and and now it's almost like maybe this is too big of a thought for this late in the conversation, but but I, I find it interesting how, how how we kind of take that music for granted where you're in the grocery store and there's just music playing all the time. It's always playing. And if you take the time to listen to the lyrics of the music or to really feel the message of the music, it's like, it's pretty heavy, but most of us aren't paying attention. Uh, it's almost like we've gotten desensitized to to that art. So anyway, just thing I've thought about. Yeah, I think generally having some time away from civilization, living, you know, even if it's just, uh, you know, a few days wild camping or something like that can be really, really healthy and make you really appreciate the kind of things that we take for granted, like, yeah, ready access to music and so on, or book, right. ready access to books as well. You know, I can... I, and podcasts. And podcasts, absolutely. You used to have to actually have conversations with people. Now you can just listen to other people talk. And yeah, it's great. And you, you can listen to it on demand. You don't have to sort of wait. You can just like summon up someone to kind of entertain you. And there are people who are in, on different continents who have never met in person before, too. So there's that element. Absolutely. Well, it has been wonderful uh, meeting you virtually. Uh, I've enjoyed many of your books, uh, including the placebo. Was it called placebo? Plas- pl- yeah, placebo, the belief effect. Oh, yeah. I really enjoyed that book. That's a really fascinating book about a topic that I think people have a lot of misunderstandings about. You, you have a, a tremendous catalog of fascinating books, the Utopia Experiment being one of them. It very, it's a page turner. It is a great story, and I really enjoyed it. So I thank you for writing the books and for coming on the show. And is there anywhere you'd like for people to get more of you, Dylan Evans? 
Uh, well, people can uh, check out my website, uh, which is www.dylan.org.uk, and uh, there's some info about my books and some of my other writings there. All right. Thank you so much, Dylan. Thanks, David. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dylan Evans. I want to thank those of you who have mentioned my work on social media. On Twitter, Cape Horn Chai, uh, that is Cape Horn Illustration, also known as Phil Thompson, who has been on the podcast before. Thank you for sharing on Twitter, on Instagram, at Sunny Enslin. Thank you. And the update of the month goes to, on Twitter, Anna Lydia Monaco. Anna Lydia says, Love, love, love this podcast. Call out to my hashtag Dignidad Literia and M Writing Friends. Listen to this episode. It's so eye-opening. Hashtag writing community, hashtag WRAC. And Anna Lydia shared episode 215 with Neil Pajricha on resilience through creativity. At the core of being able to love your work is one question. Where does the money come from? Does the work you do make humanity better? Do the products you use help you grow as a person? That's why supporting Love Your Work on Patreon is good for all of us. I can focus on making a great show so you can become a better human. It's an honest exchange, value for value. This show costs hundreds of dollars a month to produce and bring to your ears. I invest my time and creative energy in making it, so I can't keep this show going without your support. Please support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash Think of it like a coffee meeting. Is this show worth buying me a coffee a month? Head to patreon.com slash to join. You'll get perks such as early access to ad-free content, masterclasses, or office hours directly with me. That's patreon.com slash Or Overcast users, just tap on the dollar sign. Love Your Work is brought to you in part by our top Patreon supporters, such as Jeffrey Mason. The theme music for Love Your Work is At Sea by Dorena from the album About Everything and More by arrangement with Deep Elm Records at deepelm.com. Love Your Work is a production of Cadavy, Inc. <laughs>